Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by the brand new Real Estates app. It's an app for your iPhone, your iPad, what have you. R-E-E-L, Estates, Real Estates. It's only 99 cents. Here's what it is. It's an app that shows you where the houses and apartments of your favorite fictional characters in film and television are actually located in real life. You want to see the Brady Bunch house in Studio City? The Real Estates app will take you there. Or what about Jeff Lebowski's bungalow in Venice Beach? done or how about hannah horvath's brooklyn apartment in the hit television show girls the real estates app knows all you've seen these places on the screen but with the real estates app you can see them in person it's a great way to explore your city plan a trip or take out of towners on a unique tour with photos maps directions and a database of over 450 locations throughout the country real estates is easy to use and extremely entertaining better yet it spans decades of pop culture with TV shows ranging from The Jeffersons to Modern Family and a whole host of films ranging from Breakfast at Tiffany's to Ted. With the click of a button, you can see which real estates are near you. For all you know, you could be blocks away from Marty McFly's house or Elliot's house in E.T. Uh, did you know that Connor from Highlander lived on the same block as Derek Zoolander? Now you do. Real estates where your favorite characters live for more information, go to real-estates.com. That's R-E-E-L-estates.com. Or just get it at the App Store. It's available now for only 99 cents. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two people conversating. This is where your mind is at. Thank you for being here. 
Uh, I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, and I am pleased to be talking with you, to, to be talking to you. I'm not talking with you. Maybe I am. So uh, the other day, just recently, something happened to me, and I want to share it with you right now, this information. Because it was strange what happened, it was confusing, and it was a bit upsetting. But actually, you know what, Uh, first I should tell you something else, unrelated, and a, a bit more topical, a bit more current. It happened just a couple of hours ago. I was at Starbucks, a Starbucks coffee shop not far uh, from my residence here. I'm not proud of the fact that I was at Starbucks, but uh, I was there, and I was sitting outside. I was working. I was answering email uh, on my phone, and I had headphones on. I had uh, earbuds in my ears. And I was listening to music while I was emailing, and the music was playing at a relatively high volume. And as this was going on, I I sort of noticed in my periphery a gentleman on my left glancing at me repeatedly. And, uh, you know, as this happened, I, I realized suddenly that I was moaning (laughs) quietly. I didn't even know where it was coming from. And... You know, moaning, might that might not be the right word. It was almost like I was humming. But I wasn't humming a song. And uh, maybe to put a finer point on it, it was sort of like what I imagine it would sound like if a deaf person were humming. If that, if that makes sense. And I don't mean any you know disrespect to the hard of hearing. I'm just trying to describe the sound uh, with some accuracy because it was a strange sound. And I want you to understand it. It it sounded sort of like this, like, like, uh, (laughs) you know, but a little bit more melodic than that. And the thing is, I couldn't really hear myself as I was doing it, or I couldn't hear myself well because the volume was too high on my, uh, headphones, on my earbuds, the music. So by the time I realized that I was doing this, uh, moaning slash humming, It was too late, really, to get a clear understanding of what I sounded like. Uh, And what's most troubling, you know, is that I don't know exactly where it was coming from because I wasn't humming a song. I don't think. I was listening to Miles Davis. So it's not like I was singing along with something. Or, you know, know, maybe I was trying to make a, a trumpet sound involuntarily, like an involuntary trumpet sound. So there's that from earlier today, a little bit strange and probably uh, even stranger for the gentleman on my left who uh, bore witness to this. Uh, And then otherwise, uh, this other thing happened uh, that upset me. I alluded to it earlier. It upset me, and it left me a little bit rattled. So, uh, where do I begin? I was in my apartment building, 
and I was leaving the building to go somewhere, and I was on the elevator, descending, slowly, because uh, the elevator in my building is notoriously slow, and I was descending, excuse me, to the lobby of my building, I was lost in thought, staring at the floor, and uh, the elevator stopped at what I thought was the lobby. But then uh, the doors opened behind me, and I realized uh, that, in fact, I was not at the lobby, but I was on a lower residential floor, still on my way to the lobby. And so I turned around, and uh, there before me uh, was a woman, a neighbor of mine, uh, approximately 35 years old, standing there uh, holding multiple shopping bags. Like about five to seven large shopping bags, all of which uh, were full to bursting. An unusual amount of shopping bags in hand. And so this woman and I, uh, we made eye contact. And of course I said hello. And uh, the woman at this point sort of stutter-stepped a bit awkwardly at the threshold. And she said something to the effect of, Oh, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I don't know. Uh, do you think we're going to exceed the weight limit? Meaning the weight limit for the elevator. And it was just me on board this thing. I was all alone. And so I said uh, to this woman, I said, no, no, not at all. Come on board, please enter. It's not a problem. I'm happy to make room. And uh, so this woman entered the elevator and stood there next to me, and the doors uh, shut behind us, or the door shut, it's one door, and uh, we began our descent to the lobby. And as this is happening, I, I turned to the woman out of a basic sense of courtesy, and I said something to the effect of, here, let me help you with some of those bags. Just trying to be a gentleman. Trying to be neighborly. You know? Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, just stand there while this uh, woman holds seven bags on her own? And so, uh, as I'm saying this, as I'm offering my help, the woman says, no, you know, no, it's okay, you don't have to do that, it's alright. And and then, of course, you know, I'm, I'm saying something like, oh no, please, please, let me help you. And it gets to the point where I essentially just take one of the bags out of her hand. And so uh, I take the bag in my hand, and as I do this, I uh, realize that the bag is filled with styrofoam. As in, like, styrofoam peanuts, packing material. And more to the point, all of the bags, I now realize, as I look down, uh, are filled with styrofoam peanuts and are therefore light as a feather. So this is like a five-second process of realization. It's a very compressed time frame that we're dealing with here. 
about five seconds unfold as I uh, experience this unsettling epiphany and then the elevator doors open or the door opens and uh, together this woman and I exit and we walk through the lobby to uh, a door which is the door that leads to the garage for the building and uh, I remember handing the woman her shopping bag and then opening uh, the door for her so she could get through with her seven bags of styrofoam and uh, we said a quick goodbye I think I told her to have a nice day whatever you say and away she went and that was it I was left alone Uh, I walked across the pavement to uh, my bicycle which was locked up inside the garage over by the uh, recycling bins and uh, you know that's the story that's what happened (laughs) this woman uh, whom I've seen before multiple times in passing in the building she's my neighbor she lives here and uh, she saw me on the elevator and faced with the prospect of hanging out with me for about 30 seconds she lied about the weight of her shopping bags in what I can only assume was a failed attempt at avoiding me a failed attempt uh, at, at, a, at avoiding a brief social, you know, social interaction with me in a closed space so (laughs) uh, I'm just trying to piece it together I'm trying to locate a reason for this woman's uh, trepidation and her lies and her seeming desire to uh, avoid me I mean it's not we've never had a bad exchange ever I mean, we've barely had an exchange. There's no bad blood at all, I promise you. I'm the least confrontational person in my building. That's got to be the case. But, uh, you know, for some reason this woman recoiled at the thought of being near me, which is painful in a way that seems both existential and shockingly ordinary. My guest today is Emily Gould. She is the author of the memoir and the heart says whatever, which was published by free press in 2010. And her debut novel friendship is due out from Farrar Strauss and Giroux in 2014. She is formerly a co-editor at gawker.com and she now runs uh, her own publishing outfit. She's a very busy woman. She gets a lot done. And uh, her publishing outfit is an ebook publishing imprint called Emily Books. I'm very happy to have her here on the program. Uh, so let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, here she is, the lovely and talented Emily Gould. The books wounded you? Like, yes. the books typically injured you. I had to have surgery. because. Oh! Yeah. Oh, and the her- a hernia is disgusting, too. Well, like, it, was, uh, it wasn't like the, the, the... We can get really gross here, but it wasn't a groin hernia. It was an umbilical hernia, so it was just my belly button, uh, which is sort of disgusting. Okay, that's still really disgusting. 
Uh, I can't believe we've already got like we've already gotten to that point in the conversation. <laughs> We're talking about a little piece of your in, like intestines that's poking out through the like muscles of yeah. your abdomen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's pretty intimate. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what are you, like you're? You've got a, a novel coming out. You've published a memoir. You've been an editor at Gawker. You've had an interesting career so far. You've been an editor um, at a big six publisher, right? So you've done. A lot of different things, and you're also a publisher of ebooks. Am I missing? Yeah, anything? I. Oh my God, you, I I forget what some of the things are sometimes. Actually, and then I'm like, oh right, and that's also a thing that I do. Um, it's it makes it awkward to introduce myself to people at parties. I usually just sort of gloss it over, and I'm like, I'm a yoga teacher. <laughs> and you teach yoga. I I actually am currently retired from teaching yoga. Unfortunately, I really loved it, but um, I, I needed to have one job where I actually made money. <laughs> so. so what do you? So yeah, I mean, like I, I don't, you know, it, it gets tricky talking about this stuff, but it's such a worthy question in some ways because so many writers struggle trying to figure out how to finance their lives. Like, are you making money now from your literary efforts, or do you have some sort of day job? You know, like how do you how do you piece it all together? I need to know. Personally. I I love talking about this. I wish more people talked about it. I think it's the most important, well, not the most important thing, but I think it's it's a super super important thing for everyone to who does any kind of artistic thing to have conversations about all the time. Um, I don't think we're ever like hurting ourselves or each other by telling by being really open and honest about how we actually make a living. Um, so. I guess I have to now do that. <laughs> yeah, right. you, you just set yourself up. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, there there was definitely a time in my in my late twenties where I was like anomalously and bizarrely actually making a living exclusively from writing, and I naively thought that that was just how my life was going to be from that point on. Um, that and I would just was this Gawker was like was that the Gawker? No, days? no. I mean, no. I, I'm not counting like that was a that was a job. Like I'm not I'm not counting that. Like I'm talking about post Gawker when I sold my book for, you know, not um, not a ridiculous amount of money, but like a lot more than I sold my I my novel for more recently. Um, and you, and that was kind of my shot, you know. And I and I sort of knew that having worked in publishing that you kind of only get that big book big book deal that's your first book and and it's kind of like the less reason that publishers the less evidence that publishers have that they should spend a lot of money on your book the more willing they are to do it because it's like there's no evidence that you have no track and when they're making deals further down the line like this is why mid and midlist authors complain about this a lot it's like oh your your track is declining your track is declining and you're like yeah but this might be my visit from the goon squad like this this next one might be the really important one so ergo i should get more money not progressively less money with every book um but i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit and just talking about like publishing and how publishers um well the economics of publishing is like a whole other podcast unto itself probably but um, yeah it's hard i i am 31 and i feel like i'm just in the past year really starting to figure this out and i i really like 
wandered around in the wilderness for for a long time. Um, but I I think it's important for writers, especially right now, especially people who um, maybe are, you know, five or six years younger than I am, to sort of think of things that they can do for money other than write. Um, it's really nice to have something that you can do besides write or teach. Um, and I didn't do the MFA thing, um, and I I don't really think that I aspire to teach an MFA program ever, so that was just not going to be my path. I wanted to start a business, and I feel like my sort of consulting jobs um, and being in the sort of steppy space are helping me to learn the skills that I need to run my um, publishing enterprise. So let's, ta- well, let's talk about it. that. Let's talk about that. It's called what is it? It's Emily Books, right? Am I? Yeah, okay. I'm very. I was just the URL was available, and so I I took it. <laughs> um, seemed a little a little egotistical, but it's such a good name. My name, I mean, it's really <laughs> just has positive associations with it, sort of literary associations. <laughs> So, but what, and, but Emily Books has like a, I think you have like a fairly unique business model. So like, like talk about, uh, how you conceived it and what it, you know, what it is so listeners can get an idea of what you're up to. It is a unique business model. It makes it really hard to explain. Uh, but basically we are mostly a bookstore, but occasionally we're a publisher. Uh, we haven't yet published an original book though. What we mainly focus on is finding books that we think everyone should, read and they're sort of criminally under under read um and we take them and we choose them as our monthly pick so subscribers can receive them automatically they just show up in your inbox every month they're ebooks i should have said that first um and everyone else can just opt to buy them a la carte like make the decision about it uh when they hear about the monthly announcement like so, on the day that we make it okay so these books are published by uh, other presses yeah um and in some instances there are old backlist titles that the um rights have either reverted to the author or we contract with the publisher to make them available in ebook format and then sometimes they're just new books that um you know maybe were published by a, a smaller publisher and uh, the word hasn't really gotten out about them in the way that we um, imagine that it could. So, so what happens then? The publisher just basically gives you the uh, the permission to put it up, and then you give them a little cut of the subscription fee or something? Yeah, I mean, we, we actually um, share uh, profits with publishers fifty five forty five in their favor, um, and we we the way when we're just selling the book, we act like any. Um, any e-bookstore, pretty much. Like, we modeled our original contracts on um, Kobo's contracts, I think. Um, And we thought that we would just be a bookstore, I think, when we were first starting. But then we were um, shocked to realize that a lot of the books that we wanted to sell weren't available as e-books. So then we started to figure out how to make e-books ourselves. And so that has been something that we've been doing for almost two years. Um, and then our next chapter 
of Emily Books is that we are very close now, finally, to launching an app that will make the whole um, getting the books aspect of things really, really simple and seamless for people who read on iPhones and iPads. Um, so you'll be able to read the books in app, which is really exciting for us. And like the app is very beautiful and the essays and things that we publish on our website, like the Q and A's and playlists and stuff will sort of be packaged in a Emily books reader that runs alongside the book in the app. But so you can choose to just read the book and not have any bells and whistles, or you can read the book. And then if you're, want to stay in the world of the book a little bit longer, you can go and read that stuff and experience the book that way. So it's like a totally new and um, I hope really cool way of experiencing these books. And then the other piece of the business is, and then I'll stop like babbling about it, but um, they're all books by women so far. Next month we uh, introduce our first title that is written by a transgender person. <laughs> but other than that... Um, so you're slowly inching towards men. Actually. <laughs> um, well, I, God, I don't want to like, get in trouble. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, gender is obviously, you know, a social construct or whatever. But yeah, everyone has been um, uh, a woman so far. Not really because we set out to do that with a rule about it or anything, but we were pretty sure that we wanted to only choose books that uh, we felt were kind of the work of underappreciated geniuses. And we couldn't really find any geniuses who were male who were actually underappreciated. Right. <laughs> like I'm not ruling out the possibility that, that such people exist, but I, there, you know, it, I also kind of feel like, why bother when there are so many women's books that we could be giving our our time and our attention to? Well, so. and plus, like, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, you know, women predominate in terms of uh, readers. There's, you know, there's more women reading books than men by a pretty good margin. And then why not brand yourselves, you know? Like, I feel like if you can get, get your niche, you know, figured out and carve out an identity like that might not be a bad business move well i i think your theory would be a better one if women uh were actually likelier to read books by women and they're not women read books by women and men men only read books by men and like all of the data always shows that so i i think we're you know we're finding that our audience and this surprised me too um is about 50-50. It's, it's, definitely it's definitely closer to 50-50 than I originally thought it would be. I haven't actually, uh, you know, quizzed our, our subscribers and our readers who have names like Jamie about, like, what, whether they're men or women, but I'm pretty sure that there are, there are far more men than I thought would be subscribers. And I kind of also thought that our subscribers would be urban, would be like around my age. I thought they would be me basically. And they're not, they are all ages. They're all over the place. They're all over the world. Um, they're definitely not living in big cities. Um, for the most part, a lot of them, I think, um, we're starting to interview them about this a little bit. 
are people who maybe they don't have someone at a local, small, awesome, independent bookstore who they can ask for personalized recommendations. Um, and instead they have us and the internet. Um, yeah, see, I think that's the few, I think curation is the future, you know, where people, I hope you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, but I really do because I feel like there's so much information coming at people that if you can tap into a community and you or you can build a community and then you can serve its needs and, you know, have your finger on the pulse of it, so to speak, I think that's not a bad thing to do, you know? So, um, natural question, like how much does a subscription cost for Emily books? If anybody listening is interested. Oh, um, the monthly subscription is thirteen ninety nine, um, and then the books are sort of around that range too. So it's you know it's it's pretty much it's like a it's a pretty easy call to get a subscription rather than to just wait for the um, you know the book every month because you can because you can just sort of never have to wonder about what you're going to read next because it'll just show up in your email um the app pricing we're still figuring out but i think it will actually be slightly less um and we're not anticipating that we're we're kind of anticipating that we'll still have uh readers who subscribe the other way the old-fashioned way um because a lot of our customers read on kindles um which of course are not we don't ha- we we don't have like an app version that could be supported on a well i was going to say that cause that was that, that's what was going through my head is thinking like so many people have kindles uh or the kindle app on their iphone or whatever and they're so used to interfacing that way in terms of actually acquiring books like have you run into any walls like technologically with people who are like how do i take this from my email and put it on my phone you know like yeah we do have to spend a little bit of time tech supporting people uh who especially have the newer like newer kindles and they don't come with a usb cable because amazon doesn't want you to buy things from anyone but amazon of course right, right. um so but you know most people have a spare usb cable lying around it's not that hard um it really it really takes like a minute, but uh, I, under- I understand that it's annoying. Like it, we definitely all have the expectation now that we're going to be able to have instant gratification when we purchase things digitally. Um, so that's kind of what the app is for. It's a say. little bit of a bummer to me that it's that it's only um, going to serve the needs of people who read on iDevices, but. I kind of love reading on it. I and like I wish that Apple was paying me to say this. They're so not. Um, but reading on an iPhone is my favorite form of e-reading. I just love it. Um, I hold it really close to my face, and I ride the subway, and I experience much less wrist strain than I do with like a brand new hardcover. Like, don't get me wrong. I definitely also still read. Um, physical books, but I, the, the convenience and just the comfort of knowing that you have all these books with you literally every time you leave the house is so awesome. I just love that feeling of knowing that I'm carrying those, like all of those books, like literally in my pocket. It's great. So, okay. So where are you from originally? I want to get to know uh, your bio a little bit better. Like where, where do you hail from? Um, I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, right outside our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and I um, have lived in New York since 
the since May of 2001. So I guess this is my um, anniversary of living in New York. My um, 12th. 12th. Just did the math really quick. Um, so <laughs> my wait, 12th anniversary of living so in New York. So Silver Spring, Maryland, like the parents worked for the government, anything like that? Yeah, everyone's parents basically do um, when you when you grow up in that part of the country, um, in some way, shape, or form. My my mom is actually my mom actually works not for uh, the national government but for the D.C. government. She's a court appointed lawyer for abused and neglected children, and my dad is a sort of a, a PR guy, like a. Uh, when I was growing up, he had a lot of government clients, like the like uh, the FDA was his client for a long time. But he would also have he would also he would also have like more fun clients. Like uh, I remember he represented his firm represented the National Snack Food Association for a brief and glorious period of my you know elementary school years and there were ring dings and things <laughs> like endlessly coming into our house. It was a real anomaly because my mom is very, um, moose would cookbook, like a lot of vegetables and bulgur. And we were only allowed to have sugar cereals for our birthdays. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, pretty hardcore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, super round of the mill suburban, I don't know. Um, Siblings? I have a little brother named Ben, and he lives in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm, I'm picturing like a he plays the mandolin and is a hippie, but that could just be a leap. I don't know. <laughs> well, he lives in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, he he's um, he's definitely a hippie. We kind of compete about who can be more of a hippie. I mean, I am clearly also somewhat of a hippie. Due to I'm a yoga teacher, and I don't know, I have tattoos of flowers and stuff. Um, ben probably how many, is how winning. Many tattoo, how many tattoos you got? Um, oh, uh, I don't know. It depends on how you quantify them. Um, like whether you know, um, I think I think it's beyond the point of like that you can count them. <laughs> like like they're sort of parts of the tattoos that I got done at different times, I guess. So, and they, um, they overlap and like, have they, yeah. they're sort of like melded together at this point. Yeah. I, well, yeah, they're, I mean, I'm not like the, I'm not, um, I don't have like a full sleeve or anything. I wish, I think you have to be kind of rich. Like you, you either have to date a tattoo artist or be kind of rich to really have the, totally covered in tattoo look. Uh, see, this um, is the thing with me and tattoos is that I can never, I, like, and I never will be able to just as a, like a function of my personality type. Like I can't decide. It seems so permanent to me. It's like, what, I don't know what I want. What if I don't want this in two years? You know, like, how do you, how do you get there psychologically where you're like this flower and me going to be together <laughs> to the end? <laughs> you know, like, I, people tell me that a lot. Like exactly what you said, and I always kind of feel like, well, how do you make up your mind about anything then? Because like everything that you do is going to be with you until the day that you die. Like no decisions are reversible that you make. I just, like, Every, I just, I just everything gotta... that you, everything that you do becomes a part of you. Tattoos are just really like obvious. <laughs> There's yeah. sort of a, you know, very 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 
um, blatant metaphor for that, which I think is why I like them. Um, also just the idea that it's something that you can decide to do to your body, like your body can change in some way as you get older that isn't just, you know, uh, going towards decrepitude and death. (laughs) It's more, more decorative and, um, and you have control over it. Do you have any tattoos that you're iffy on now? Oh, totally. I mean, yeah, no, for sure. Um, well, the first, uh, my first tattoo, I think a lot of people will tell you this. And my first tattoo is like a real, you know, um, it's a heart <laughs> that is broken. Oh. And I know. <laughs> and I got it when I was um, 19. Um, and I've thought about covering it up. But I also kind of, I I want to you know, be able to look at it and be like, you were that 19 year old and have some kind of compassion for my 19 year old self, who is basically a stranger to me at this point, but it keeps you connected to all of the different, sometimes really dumb people that you have ever been to have tattoos. Um, and also you kind of don't think about it. You're, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll catch a glimpse of myself in one of those three, three way mirrors that they have at department stores. And I'll be like, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Where is this? Where, where on your body is this, uh, heart tattoo, the broken heart? It is on my right, uh, hip bone, not like in a off limits, um, place. But, you know, like if I was wearing a swimsuit, you could see it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, those three-way mirrors, I don't like them. And and it's like, you know what? This is what I've never understood about uh, uh, clothing stores where they put you into a fitting room and then they put you under a fluorescent light with a three-way mirror. It's like, you got to light me better. I look like shit. <laughs> like, Seriously. I don't want to buy these clothes. I look horrible, you know? Like, I feel like yeah. I need some soft lighting and one mirror and I don't know. Yeah, I think, I don't know, maybe it's some sort of like, oh, buy these things to conceal your horrible, disfigured <laughs> ugliness and it's supposed to goad you into shopping more. I don't, yeah. yeah maybe that really... is, a, there must be some psychology at work because it seems like such a fundamental thing, you know, like let, let people, like what's going to help make the conversion here? You know? Totally. I find shopping like intensely traumatic. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not, not my fave. Every, like for a few days after I've been in one of those fluorescent lit three-way mirror changing rooms, I sort of walk around being like, well, I guess that's what I really look like. Like <laughs> have to reevaluate everything. Uh. Well, um, let's move on to happier topics. So okay, totally. Your, bro- your brother is uh, a hippie in Asheville. Is he a creative too? Or, or is, he, is he doing other things? Like do you guys have like a, you know, both have a writerly bearing? No, we're really different. Um, I mean, he's he's definitely creative. Like he does woodworking, and he's really into gardening and taking care of his home. Um, a lot of stuff, all of which I'm terrible at, um, as evidenced by the fact that I live in a nest of books and paper. Um, but uh, he actually is going to school now um, to be a nurse. So he's getting really into science and, um, you know, all of the, all of the classes in high school and college that I just like really couldn't make myself pay attention to at all. So yeah, we're, we're pretty, I mean, we have some stuff in common, like we both really like cats and 
Um, oh, and he's creative because and he doesn't play the mandolin. Although I think he can, but he's he's <laughs> one of those one of those people who like can pick up any instrument. Right. My dad is kind of like that too. Like my dad has has always. So you um, you come from a creative family in some way, or there you can see where it, you can see where it originates in you, correct? Oh, I guess so. I've never really thought about it, but yeah, no, my family is cool. Like they're. My my whole big extended family, um, luckily, all lives really close to each other in the D.C. area, and we get together a lot. And um, we they usually will have a party every month for like all of the birthdays that are in that month. So, God, it um, sounds nice. So it's like a happy family. You grew up happy. I know. I, what's my excuse? <laughs> no idea. That's how I feel too. I have a pretty happy family, and it's like God. But why do I? Feel, why am I complaining so much? I have it so good, you know. Um, yeah, I, if I, my imaginary therapist and I will have to spend some time working through that one, <laughs> my like therapist that I can't afford. No, I mean, I, I think I had a lot of, um, weird misplaced rage starting from a pretty young age. And it was also just like a weird kid who, um, uh, you know, preferred the company of books to most other humans. Um, and and just was like standard writer child in those ways. So, and I was very like feminist from a really um, precociously young age and would put up posters decrying school policies that I considered sexist (laughs) in like fourth grade and then get in trouble for it and like have to go to the principal's office. And um, so I had a, a, like an activisty streak, but it was always a very like narcissistic activisty streak that was more about like a perceived injustice that had been done to me specifically. You know? <laughs> right. You don't and care. It, it's not about the other people. It's about you. Like, it took me a while to <laughs> like get past the sort of, you know, <laughs> to emerge into a kind of feminism that was not just like me-ism. But um, I think I'm getting there finally at my advanced um, age. So, so a smart bookish, slightly rage filled adolescent. And then, uh, but getting good grades, went to college. Like what, what was that period of your life? Like, um, well, that was actually kind of awful for me. Cause I, I, I grew up in this part of the country where the public schools are really, really, really great. And I actually went to a magnet public school for high school and middle school. Um, Everyone who I graduated with in my little program was getting into Ivy League schools and getting, it was like just normal to have perfect SAT scores. Like if you didn't have perfect SAT scores, people were like, Oh, (laughs) something's a little fishy about that one. But, um, and so I, um, (laughs) I don't know. I was very, (laughs) like, I made a lot of weird, um, I was just kind of a nightmare as a teenager. Like all of my, I, like all my worst, personality attributes that I still have um, and that like flare up from time to time, you know, be like, like really like mean what? to someone on the internet. <laughs> like, right. I, I mean, I was just sort of like bossy and cruel and really good at insulting people and, um, kept, you know, I ran my mouth off in situations where it would have behooved me to keep my mouth shut. I don't think my teachers loved me. Like I definitely didn't have mentor teacher who was like my biggest (laughs) fan or anything. And I, 
for for whatever reason, probably for like a whole constellation of related reasons, I just did not get into any of the colleges that I wanted to get into. I also stubbornly only applied to like five schools because I was so sure that I would just nail everything and like that all, all colleges would of course want like wonderful me and none of them did. Except where, did you, where did you want to go? I ended up, I, I, I think I thought that I wanted to go to Brown or um, someplace like that, feeling that Sarah Lawrence, um, where my um, really, really close friend, Bennett Madison, um, who's also a writer, who's still like my really good friend to this day, in spite of this, um, was accepted and I wasn't. Um, and I was like devastated. I was so mad. And I also, it really shook me. I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm not smart. Like I had sort of based my whole self-concept around the idea that I was smart. And then the universe was like, guess what? You're not. And I, I just sort of went into a, a weird tailspin of, I didn't know who I was or what I was doing. And so my first year at Kenyon was just like miserable. I thought I had to become like a dumb bunny now because it turned out that I wasn't smart. I, I grew my hair out really long. I straightened it. I dyed it like a lighter shade of blonde. I hung out with people in fraternities. And then after a year of that, I was like, I don't think I actually am a dumb bunny. <laughs> and I started hanging out with the hippies who were like an alternative fraternity who pooled their money to buy drugs. And after a year of that, I was like, I think I'm done with Kenyon. <laughs> and I, um, and I left and I moved to New York. Um, and I finished my degree at the new school um, and I fulfilled my dream and ambition of like living in the East Village in a tiny apartment um, that smelled like chain smoked Lucky Strikes. And <laughs> I was very, 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 very intensely happy in 2001. Um, Even with like the 9 11, I mean, you moved there and 9 11 happens, right? I mean, it's just like. Yeah, I moved there in May and. Um, yeah, it was, a, um, I think it really sealed the deal for me actually vis-a-vis -vis, like, would I continue to live in New York? Um, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, I, it was too horrible for my tiny 19 year old brain to, um, to comprehend for a really long time what had happened. It was like a file that like was taking a long time to download or where, where were you? Like, what, what was your experience of that? I was taking the Long Island Railroad out to uh, Stony Brook for an interview with the artist Phoebe Glockner. I had read about her in the New York Times Magazine and written to her and volunteered to be her assistant for no money because I loved her work so much. And I ended up spending like the next three days with her because the trains weren't running back into the city. Like I, you know, I woke up really early that morning, um, got myself, I was probably hungover cause I was like always hungover and I got myself <laughs> to the train station. And then I was sitting on the train, you know, nursing my hangover, probably listening to my disc man. I think it was a disc man cause it was 2001. And I noticed that everyone was like going to the windows on one side of the train um, after, and it was like the part of the train journey where the train goes above, is just coming above ground, like coming out of a tunnel. 
and I looked out the window and you, and we saw the second tower fall and I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) And I, you know, I don't even remember what the rest of the train ride was like, but I got out of the train and Phoebe was there and I never met her before. You know, I was there to like meet her, to be like evaluated by her. I think at the time also, this is very incidental to the story, um, but I think at the time I was still thinking that I would grow up to be a comic book artist because um, that was my ambition at that point in my life, I think, I thought. Um, and... and um, Anyway, and she was just like, hi, I'm Phoebe. And I was like, hi. And she was like, uh, let's go call your mom. <laughs> so we did. And then, uh, yeah, and I, I couldn't sleep. Um, we just, like, watched CNN. What, a, what a strange way to meet someone. It was great, though. I mean, it was it was horrible, but it was like, I, I she had all these amazing, um, do you know her work? She's amazing. No, like, she's no. a What's it, Phoebe Glockner? Yeah, should, she's, she's the author of this book, um, Diary of a Teenage Girl, that is a, it's like a, um, it's, it's totally an Emily book because it's, it's a novel, but it's like, it sort of blurs the line between memoir and novel because Phoebe incorporates um, passages from her, her own teenage diary and illustrates them, but it's it's not about her. It's about a character named Minnie, who looks exactly like her. <laughs> um, but it, so it's like not her, but not not her also. Um, and she ha- she had all these amazing amazing comics, um, and I just like stayed up all night reading them um, and. Yeah, this is so crazy. I haven't thought about this in a really long time, but that was what happened. And then, you know, I went back to the city as soon as it was possible to do so. Um, and I think I I realized that I wanted to stay there and to live there forever because of how it was just this, um, you know, people were um, very, like everything that you can possibly say about this period of time is super cliched, but like, um I sort of, I I really felt like I saw New York at its best. Like the the crazy, scary thing to me about the more recent um, really bad shit that has happened in New York is that I felt like this with the um, with Hurricane Sandy. I, I I saw a bit of that. I like I did some uh, volunteering in the Rockaways and stuff, but I saw, I also saw New York like not coming together in the way that I had, I had sort of like convinced myself that it could be relied on to do in like when something very, very terrible happens, like everyone sort of, uh, drops their like New Yorkery like insistence on independence and anonymity and, and like comes together in this like strange and bizarre and magical way for like exactly as long as it takes. And then goes, back to the awesome way that it always is for the rest of the time. Um, And like, I love both things and I, that's where I want to live. Like I want to live in a city where you can't like, you know, that in a pinch, your neighbors would actually drop everything and do anything for you, but you don't really have to make eye contact with them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
that is the best of both worlds. Um, I think so. so I, yeah. And, and so I don't mean to, I don't mean to like prematurely cut off that storyline because I no, like, no, no, like that's could, fine. I feel like, but I feel like we could go. I feel like we could go for a while. Like when it comes to nine 11 and all the oh, well, like, like, like anyone could like literally everyone who lives in America kind of could. Right. You know? Right. But I want to make sure that we talk about your, um, blogging. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to hear a little bit about Gawker because that's sort of a fascinating place to have worked. Uh, I want to hear about uh, CNN and Jimmy Kimmel. I mean, like, can you can you talk a bit about this life? You've written about it really eloquently in the New York Times magazine, correct? Um, there was a big piece you did about that part of your career that I thought was really – I remember reading it, you know, when it came out and feeling like it said some really essential things about the way writers operate now and the perils of – oversharing online but like talk about your advent as a blogger um well i I started having a personal blog circa 2003-2004 which um you know i didn't think it was going to be this thing that would change my life and i didn't at that time really think of myself as a writer i was working in a publishing house and just kind of trying to keep my head on and do my work and my you know, I had I had kind of thought being a writer is for other people. I have given up on that, and I will ascend the ranks at this publishing house, and eventually I will be like my my heroes, these women who um, are editors, and they're the breadwinners of their families. Maybe they live in like a nice brownstone <laughs> in Park Slope, um, and. I was like very secretly miserable, but I didn't, but I was like, I was so kind of like ambitious and determined. And I, I was, I was kind of, my misery was like kind of a secret from myself. And I, by having this sort of public performative writing space, I, I figured some of that stuff out. Like, I mean, you know, obviously people have always kept diaries, but it, for me, it was somehow, there was some piece of it about um, having an audience, even if the audience was slightly imaginary, just like the potential for there to be an audience was something that kept me interested and kept me writing. Um, so I think, yeah, so I just sort of, uh, uh, it was lucky for me that blogs existed because it enabled me to become a writer, to have the courage to admit to myself that I was a writer. And so, and then how does that get you to where Gawker calls and says, we want to meet and we want to talk about a job? I mean, how big of an audience had you uh, gotten by that point or built? Oh, I really, I don't think I had really built um, a very big audience, but I, I, I had, um, uh, made friends with other bloggers and, and, you know, and I think it probably like, it probably helped a little bit that I could meet them. I could make up excuses to meet them. Like, and it wasn't really an excuse. Like I was actually being told by my bosses at the publishing house, like go out and cultivate interesting blog writers. Maybe they would like to write books. So you should have drinks with them or something on your corporate card, which I had as a 23 year old, because that was a very different time in the publishing. Yeah, I was going to say. 
Yeah, it was weird, um, but great. And um, so I so I just sort of socially knew these people like they were my friends. Uh, like I I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like BFF forever with the people who are already working at um, Gawker and like similar sites. But um, I remember when I like read the announcement that the then editor of Gawker was leaving Gawker, I sort of, you know, part of my brain was like, oh, you could have that job. And I was like, no. (laughs) But it wasn't totally outside the realm of possibility. I mean, because like at that point, it seems like a really long time ago. Um, We're just not talking about that many people. Like it felt like a very sort of small internet then it i i certainly still felt like the internet was small yeah no, it's, um, I mean, or like a lot smaller than it is now like now it just feels like it's infinite you know it feels like just like it's 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 past some sort of breaking point for me at the, you know at this point yeah i don't know i mean they're they're kind of new interesting voices um all the time which is um great and and it keeps me interested slash addicted um but i still don't think that there are i just, it doesn't feel infinite to me like i at any given time i feel like i could i could like list like the 100 most like compelling internet people <laughs> you know right um maybe not but no i could i don't know anyway um yeah, I I love the internet sort of like mediated intimacy. I think it's also appealing for someone like me who is maybe I forget what the actual like Myers Briggs type is, but I like I am kind of social, but I love to be able to turn it off. It's kind of like the thing we were talking about earlier, where like you know your neighbors would go to bat for you, but they, on the other hand, you don't really want to hang out with them. I'm, <laughs> like, almost, I'm almost exactly that way. I think it's like INFJ or ENFJ, yeah. it's like borderline. You know? I'm, yeah, like I like I do need social contact, and I want to be around people, and I'm also like good at collaborating, but. I also like feel like it's draining and I definitely need to be able to turn it off to like recharge my batteries. And the internet is made for people like that. I mean, it's perfect. Like you can be super, super social and then you can close it and it all goes away. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Kind of. Well, I mean, you you bring up an interesting point, like really the, I think the delineating factor for extroversion and introversion, even if you're somebody who's a hybrid, which is most people, is mm-hmm. that you either walk into a party full of people and, and leave the party energized or you walk into a party full of people and you leave the party completely depleted and in need of like a, a small dark room, you know, like, yeah. and I think I'm more of the latter. Like I, I, I love a party, but when it's over, I need to like go home and like, you know, reboot or something. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so what was it like to work uh, at Gawker? You get that job, you go in, uh, you know, what's it like there? <laughs> um, it was great. And also it was so terrible. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm still pretty good friends with people who I worked with there. So that that's good. Um, I feel like I made friends forever there, kind of foxhole 
camaraderie situation. Um, it's also, I feel like, not qualified to talk about gawker because whatever gawker meant then is so different from whatever gawker is now, um, which is, you know, it's it's so vast now. And it's I think its aims are so, um, so different and so ambitious. It really is um, competing with and replacing, I guess, some of the things that when I worked there, we were still, I think, legitimately feeling like we were sort of a gnat that was irritating a giant beast that was the traditional media. And now it's a beast. (laughs) It's just another shape of beast. Um, so it was, it was real, and that transition was happening, I think, or beginning to happen um, during the time that I was working there. And I, so I saw it happen, and I didn't realize what was happening. I think um, until I, I sort of um, could see it in retrospect and, and realize that at a time when I thought that maybe I had been sort of Speaking truth to power, I had really been almost in the position of a bully, like doing the inverse of what I I had thought I was doing. Um, but live um, and learn, you know. I guess I don't have a lot of guilt about it. Like I, I I have personally apologized to the people who I feel completely um, like I I just wrote some dumb, thoughtless, throwaway post not knowing enough background about them and it was you know for some of those people it's still high in their google search results and like i feel their pain (laughs) um because i've obviously been in the exact same situation um but um you know i also think that i did work there that was not bad and i definitely learned a lot about this sort of invisible power grid of New York City, at least, you know, New York City in 2008. So this probably needs a little updating, but um, it was, what do you yeah. mean, What do you mean like invisible power grid? Just people in the media world who make the chips fall, essentially? Or? Well, the media world and all of the other sort of interconnected worlds of like the various culture industries in New York and the money, you know, the, the people who actually have power to... Um, hire people, fire people, ruin people's lives. Um, and that stuff is, that stuff is pretty interesting. Like I am, I'm not, I think I was always interested in the piece of it that has to do with books and publishing more than I was interested in the other pieces of it. Um, and I am so uninterested in it now that I actually haven't you know, except for occasionally something will flit into my feed from it, but I haven't opened like gawker.com and actually read Gawker for probably like, I don't know, three, three years, maybe more. Um, it's just not, and I know people who work there too. It's like embarrassing. Like I've no, I've no idea what's going on in their in their lives because they're like, oh, did you see that thing? And I'm like, nope. nope. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just don't. Um, 
I just got sort of involved in and interested in other stuff like yeah. books. Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then like the whole like CNN talking head episode, which, you know, which was part of the New York times magazine piece. I know you've covered this ground a lot, but it's like an interesting experience because uh, I can imagine you go from being sort of like a bloggery writery, per, you know, per, a person with that sort of bearing. And then suddenly you're, you know, on camera, uh, on CNN when Jimmy Kimmel's interviewing you and you're like a talking head, like, was it totally disorienting for you? Like, how did you feel when it was happening? And then how did you feel in the aftermath? Well, I had, I had not, I, I was not, although it certainly seems that way. I was not completely new to being on camera. I had done that sort of thing, but it, it had always been really softbally. Like you go on MSNBC and they're like, how is Britney Spears doing? And you say <laughs> one little soundbite and then they're like, okay, thank you. And then you're out, you know? Um, and so what was and just, I, and just when, so and when I came in, I definitely thought that that was going to be what, ha what was going to happen. I wasn't briefed about the topic okay. that we'd be talking about at all it was a remote so i didn't see a monitor i just had a, one of those little bugs in my ear and so i could hear uh what they were talking about but um i definitely thought that they were fucking with me and i didn't know that it was serious and you can kind of see if you watch it like the change in my face where i'm like oh shit <laughs> like he's really mad um at something that i didn't do and have no control over like the at that point it was so bizarre to me like there's no reason for you know anyone involved in that to have actually done the research that would have been necessary for them to know this but i i had nothing to do with creating or maintaining the gawker stalker map it was something that was like maintained by interns it was like just not really something i had ever like spend any time thinking about and I should have had probably some media trained canned response to those questions but I was just completely blindsided and I handled it abominably badly and of, you know of course like I, I learned how to play poker recently and I was horrible at it and they were like just like control your face like <laughs> don't make don't make facial expressions and I was like I can no, <laughs> that's not, how my face is yeah I would not be I'm not like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a horrible liar like i just can't you know I'm, i would be a terrible poker player i don't even know how to play poker that's a, like a weird confession but i don't think <laughs> if you sat yeah. me down i would know how to play um I, yeah it's it's probably more fun if you just play it as like a pure game of luck and don't actually know what any of the values of the cards mean <laughs> um you just decide whether you're in or out based on like a whim you know um but yeah, the the whole situation was so bizarre, um, and I have, I guess, mostly gotten over it. It's the one little piece of it that is still a bummer to me is that it really, like, until I do something much, much more high profile and much worse, it will just be the thing, you right. know? Um and it's been it's been years and years like it's still i i wrote this very earnest heartfelt blog post recently about you know doing creative work and trying to make money and 
trying to find a balance between those things and giving up on some youthful dreams that I've had for myself and like, will I ever have children and just like all of like all of this, you know, bloggy live journaling. Um, and the comments were very nice and supportive and like most of them were people I knew or like internet know, you know, and then one person was this like very classic straight from a time machine troll who said, you're a worthless cunt. I saw you on Jimmy Kimmel. I'm glad he ruined your life. (laughs) And like, that is going to always continue to happen. But who are these people? Who are they that like are sitting there like, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, like, I have such I'm just a hard gonna, time I, like, accessing I have that. appointed myself to be the person who goes around the internet informing women that they're worthless cunts. Yeah, I have zero insight into who that person is. I really, I like... <laughs> like, who wants that? I mean, even if it's not something that's that, like, cartoony, you know, like, the, who are the people who just, like, seek out conflict on comment boards and, like, want to hurt someone or say something really negative or... I just don't get it. Like psychologically, it seems like it seems like so obviously toxic and not only harmful to the person who's your intended target, but ultimately it's got to just make you feel terrible. Like what are you getting out of it? You know, I guess maybe that quick high, but that, you know, that goes away. But. Oh, um, the internet definitely brings out whatever, like anonymity, obviously vouchsafes, um, the, you know, people think it gives them the right to just be, um, yeah, I don't know. I like, I have like zero good insights about this that haven't been said um, a bazillion times. Uh, To me, it's really, really important to have a consistent and, um, accountable, uh, and, tied to my real identity online presence I think the highest like you know thing that we we can aspire to like on the internet and possibly in other realms of our life is just like maintaining like a consistent self like not being like different people in different contexts and if you are like a shitty troll in some contexts and you and you are a like fan of homemade pies in other internet contexts. Like I would really prefer if uh, I would pre- I pre- would prefer that not to be not to be actually like as possible as it is. And I think I think in general the internet has has moved away from uh, commenting and that isn't tied to some sort of consistent username or like or like identity that's the same across all platforms. Like I understand that there are totally legitimate political uses for internet anonymity, but the fact is like if you're not living in a country with under some sort of despotic regime and you're just like using internet anonymity to tell women that they're ugly and horrible, like you're not a freedom fighter, you know. <laughs> It's, you're not part of a cause. At yeah, it's, yeah, it's you're you're abusing it, and it's it's disgusting. And I don't think that it should be an option. Or I don't think it should be like, you know, I'm not gonna like go to the mat to protect people's rights to do that. It's not a high priority. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I don't know. I think, I mean, I think that uh, what you're doing uh, with the book, I mean, I'm excited for the book that's coming out on FSG and then uh, Emily Books, the ebook thing, the book club. Um, I don't know. You've, you're just, you're doing a lot of things that I, f- I feel are uh, really interesting and exciting and admirable. And, you know, yeah. I, I feel like you also have had some representative experiences in your career with regard to the blogging and with regard to Gawker and with regard to, I don't know, just the, the convergence of different media that, I don't know. I mean, they're interesting on, on a certain level, but they also, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, like, you know, the, the, the fact that you've had these experiences and have kind of seen them through and have learned from them, uh, I think will hopefully serve you well as you go forward. I mean, there, there, there's some value there, you know, even if there were, um, you know, some punches taken along the way or whatever. Um, I really hope that I, you know, have learned and that I'm still learning. I mean, I know that I'm still learning. I I definitely feel like I am constantly learning and that it's hard. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it's it's good. I I ultimately wouldn't want my my life to be any other way. Um. So, and I hope, I hope that I, it would make me feel good if I knew that maybe people have sort of not like learned from my experiences because that's really pompous, but that I have sort of, um, forged ahead into some new territory and maybe things won't be quite as heinous for people who do similar things after me, especially, especially, especially women. Cause I, I think, you know, I, I hope that I can be a locus of, you know, the, the best that is, is currently happening and, you know, like making a space for women's voices that are not necessarily commercial or not, you know, people who write about themselves and they don't have like conventional, uh, memoir, you know, redemptive story arcs, like I got married or I had a baby or I gave up heroin or I found Jesus. Like, I just want women to be able to write about their actual lived experiences and for there to be a place for that in our culture. So that's my thing. Well, cool. Well, I, uh, I so appreciate the time and I congratulate you on all of your successes and I wish you well. Uh, and particularly on the, like, you know, in this, in the, in the vein of experimentation, like I have a lot of, I feel a certain form of kinship with that impulse. And I admire the fact that you're out there trying things because I know that it's not always easy. And I think that it's necessary. So best of luck to you. And thanks so much. Thank you. All right, folks, there you go. That is Emily Gould. Go get her memoir. It's called, and the heart says whatever. Uh, And be on the lookout for her novel, which is called Friendship. That is due out in 2014 from FSG. You can find her online at emilymagazine.com. Be sure to check out Emily Books at emilybooks.com. You can find Emily herself on the Facebook, I believe. I'm pretty sure she's there. And her Twitter handle is at Emily Gould. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, and I should note <clears throat> that Kill Rockstars did not supply the uh, piano music that played at the front end of the show during my tragic story. 
That particular song is called Drama of the Past. Uh, be sure to check out TheNervousBreakdown.com. That's my online culture magazine and literary community, TheNervousBreakdown.com. Don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app, uh, the official app of this show. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program, to access the full archives, premium content, and so on. And uh, the app itself is free, so go get that if you haven't done so already. Otherwise... Uh, my moaning, my humming, my neighbor, the styrofoam, the uh, confusion, the controversy. I don't know. I don't know how to process it. I don't know if I'll ever be able to fully process what happened. Maybe this woman is, is socially awkward. It was a moment in time. And maybe it's her. And, you know, and not me. I can be a lot to take, I guess. I don't know. I'm friendly. I'll say hello to you in an elevator. I'll do that. I'll chat you up in a confined space. Please remember that Albert Camus went through most of his adult life with recurring tuberculosis and that Charles Dickens was known to take incredibly long walks while in a state of mania. Walks that would sometimes go as many as 25 miles conducted at a headlong pace. That's it for now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Emily Gould. Uh, I'll be back in just a few days on Sunday with another author, another conversation, some uh, back and forth, some collegial banter. Okay. Imagine we're on an elevator together right now. <laughs>